Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Art Holes. Uh, before we get going, I just want to take the opportunity to thank everyone. If you're still listening after all of the weirdness and tolerating my, I guess, non-traditional view of history through what's looking to be around a 14-hour series, I can't thank you enough for still being here. This has been one of the most rewarding things I've ever done. Uh, the show more broadly, but specifically this series. It's been legitimately life-changing. Historically, I would say I haven't been the best at, you know, outwardly expressing myself or communicating what I'm thinking. Uh, Teresa, I know you're listening, and I'm sure you can attest to that. Teresa! Um, can you, um, 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 I, I know, I ain't even gonna, you know... Nah, we not arguing about it. Okay, I'm raising my... All right, here, baby. And the Frida series and going through all of this has made continuing that trend basically an impossibility. I'm excited about the next few artists. Uh, definitely the next one. It's looking to be a little less emotionally intense to put together. Maybe. We'll see. We are guaranteed to learn some weird stuff, though. But before that, we have a story to finish, and we have to say our goodbyes to an extraordinary woman, and I've got a floor-length mirror that needs a date night, and a small batch bourbon that is calling my name. So let's do this. On May 21st, Christina and Frida flew into New York and prepared for the operation that was scheduled for early June. She'll be under the care of Dr. Wilson, future bow-tie-wearing, adorable old man who was recommended to her by Arcady Boitler. Wilson's plan was to remove a piece of bone from Frida's pelvis and somehow screw it together with a 15-centimeter rod connecting four of her vertebrae together. She's having a spinal fusion. She would lose some mobility, something she'd gladly give up for stability and the strength to stay upright. The pressure of her body would now be diffused, if you'll pardon the pun, along the entire spine as an integrated structure, instead of losing integrity and collapsing into one of the vertebrae with things crunching together, I think. I really don't know. I read a lot about autograft bones versus allograft, a demineralized bone matrix, and bone morphogenic proteins that stimulate bone growth somehow. It's really two surgeries in one, with a lot of bone cutting to get that rogue piece, and then anchoring it with screws. It sounds horrendous, and it's super dangerous in 1946. So was going under anesthesia for that matter. The anesthesia was chloroform, and quite a few people died as a direct result of the anesthesia itself. Using chloroform for surgery for anything other than emergency battlefield amputations when you really had no other options had shockingly high risks. We didn't use chloroform for too long because of those risks. From S.A. Odenton's article, Chloroform Anesthesia, a clinical comparison of chloroform and halothane administered from precision vaporizers, in the Journal of Anesthesia, Volume 23, Number 4, published October 1968. We had to go deep in the research for this, because chloroform as an anesthetic hasn't been used in several decades, and I have no editorial self-control. In addition to getting the dosage right and not immediately shutting someone's body down, the major complications of chloroform fall into two different categories. These are, quote, 
sudden cardiac arrest, probably resulting from direct chemical or reflex nervous stimuli, leading to ventricle fibrillation or syncope, and delayed chloroform poisoning due to hepatic damage, unquote. So basically you either have a sudden heart attack or you slowly die of liver poisoning. And that's after you come out of the surgery, after you wake up and have a sudden rush of gratitude that you're still alive, thinking you made it through, and then your liver just gives out. Then you've got to deal with the surgery itself. That has complications ranging from creating a false joint between bones called a pseudoarthrosis. You just get like an extra elbow or something. I don't know what the hell is happening there. Hardware and bone fractures, partial or full paralysis, and massive infection, including sepsis. Does anybody out there think this surgery was elective because she wanted to feel special? Me neither. The only person Frida wanted there holding her hand as she went under was the only person it could possibly be. It was her baby sister. That was the bond she had with Christina, the chubby one. There was some letter. I think it's a few years from now. It's a random letter, and I forgot who it was to. Lucienne or Ella Wolf, maybe. But what stuck with me from this letter was Frida just offhandedly referred to Christina as the chubby one, like it was an afterthought. See what the chubby one wants to do. Over 30 years later, two kids, a deadbeat husband, and a lifetime of experiences, the nickname your big sister gives you, it's gonna stick. My nickname growing up was Sweet Chuck. Carl Sweet Chuck was the nerdy guy from the Police Academy movies from the 80s. It was Christmas one year, and the TV was on in the background, and 80s comedy nerd icon Tim Kazarinski comes on screen in the movie Police Academy 3. He's got the horn rim glasses, riding a moped, and at the same time, Everybody turned and looked at me, and here I was, rocking some horn rim glasses, I had that slicked-down side part haircut, I looked like a ventriloquist dummy version of the guy. My whole family burst out laughing, one of my sisters joyfully yelled sweet chuck, and there was no going back. This is me trying to connect with the young people listening, with a story about early 80s Saturday Night Live cast member Tim Kazarinski. I was a nine-year-old child that looked like a middle-aged public accountant. Most of my childhood was looking like a 45-year-old man. I even had the corduroy pants. It was bad, with the exception of the entire year when I had to wear an eye patch and I looked like a pirate. In a previous episode, I briefly mentioned that one of our family traditions is there's around an hour reserved each holiday, like clockwork, when my entire family goes around the table and tells embarrassing Michael stories. We never know when it'll be or what story will trigger a memory, and everybody lights up and innately knows it's time. And to be fair, I did give them a lot of material to work with. It's almost magical. I'm like, okay, just get through the next 42 minutes and it'll be over. I just need to sit here, eat my apple pie with vanilla ice cream and a slice of cheddar cheese, and go through the mental Rolodex of childhood shame to mentally prepare myself for getting roasted. 
Okay, they'll want to bring up the time I wanted to shoot the cable guy with a pellet gun from my bedroom window because he noticed we had one of those descrambling boxes on the side of the house. The one that gets you the free movie channels. And he ratted us out and took away our Cinemax. Who snitches like that? Did that come out of your pocket? How dedicated to your craft are you? In retrospect, I think we all know why I felt so passionately about that. Let's see, what else, what else? Oh, they'll laugh about the time our cat diarrheaed inside my backpack and I went to school without knowing and when I reached inside to get my books, it got all over my hands. It smelled like cheese and I cried and all the students in Mrs. Costanza's fifth grade classroom laughed at me as I was covered in liquid cat shit. And I get to relive all of those wonderful embarrassing moments over and over again every year, with both my sisters as joyful co-captains on this journey. And it's because of that lifetime of sibling harassment, not in spite of it, that if you told me either of my sisters would be the one to hold my hand before being chloroformed for surgery, I would feel lucky. And granted, neither of them had sex with my husband, something that strangely makes Christina being there make even more sense for some reason. That's the weird thing about family. This family more than most. With Christina holding her hand, Frida was put under. Many hours later, after two big incisions, the sawing, screwing metal and bone into other bone, Frida was closed back up and she came out of anesthesia. When she regained consciousness, the pain was unimaginable. Just try to picture what it feels like after you wake up and you're getting your bearings and your whole body starts letting you know that you just had a four vertebrae spinal fusion completed with World War II era equipment and know-how and then you sneeze. Christina said the doctors gave Frida so much morphine to counteract the pain that she started hallucinating, seeing animals floating around the hospital room. In the six weeks following, all the sisters could do was wait in the hospital room for the metal to anchor and the bone grafting to take hold. The procession of friends who came to visit was, as you can imagine, it was everyone. Isamu Noguchi came and brought Frida a glass-covered box full of preserved butterflies that she put above the hospital door and would eventually bring back to Mexico and put on the underside of her bed. She painted some and wrote to loved ones even though she wasn't supposed to. From a June 30th letter to Alejandro, the Cachucha, quote, Alex Darling they do not allow one to write very much, but this is only to tell you that the big operation already took place. Three weeks ago, they proceeded to the cutting and cutting of bones, and he is marvelous, this doctor, and my body is so full of vitality that they already proceeded to have me stand on my feet for two minutes. The bother is that the bone takes a long time to grow and to readjust itself, and I still have to spend six weeks in bed before they can release me and I will be able to flee from this terrifying city to my beloved Coyoacan. Please write to me and send me one book. Please don't forget me. Alex, don't abandon me alone in this evil hospital and write me. Christy is very, very bored, and we are burning up with the heat. It is enormously hot, and we no longer know what to do. What is happening in Mexico? What is happening with La Raza there? 
Tell me things about everybody and, above all, about you. I send you lots of affection and many kisses. I received your letter, which cheered me so much. Don't forget about me. You're Frida. Unquote. Something about that letter got to me. We've come so far and grown with her through so much, and despite that evolution and change, there's still a part of her that's the young girl who hated being away from her friends and didn't want her high school boyfriend to forget about her when he went off to travel the world. This notion that we never fully give up the history of ourselves. There's always a tiny part of you who's in fifth grade with cat diarrhea all over your hands. We're now entering that second phase of unclear and murky history, when details and information are difficult to verify. It's why we needed to spend so much time here. We couldn't gloss over this surgery. It was an intensive and dangerous procedure, one of the few that had good surrounding information, and there was a fact that I kinda glossed over that we have to go back to now and discuss. From the moment she was first given morphine, when she saw the animals in the hospital room, Frida has a lifelong, crippling addiction to opiates. It's already over. I don't know that I fully appreciated the idea that somebody could be immediately addicted to something. Spending this much time with Frida, now I see it. She didn't have a chance. Opium, from the opium poppy, is scarily designed by nature to be the ultimate solution to human pain. It's been used since the Mesopotamians, the Sumerians called it the joy plant. It's fundamentally tied to human civilization and has been processed and taken in countless forms. Opioids bind to the opioid receptors in the brain, spinal cord, and organs, blocking out pain signals to and from the brain and causing a flood of dopamine that creates a wave of relaxation and positive feelings. Frida has spent a lifetime with emotional and physical pain, had severe bouts of depression, and was now encountering opioids when she was already deep into a severe alcohol addiction that she admitted was how she self-medicated to cope. As soon as she got the seemingly magical injection that eliminated every bad feeling, they're gone and she has no more worries. It was done right away. She is an addict. Much of her life will be a search for whatever opiate she can find in whatever way she can get it. It's injection after injection. When the doctors won't prescribe her more, which back then was a lot, Diego has to find a connection somewhere else, as her tolerance builds and builds. If she doesn't have any opiates, all the original pain floods back, and withdrawal symptoms on top. Racing heart rate, nausea, diarrhea, uncontrollable sweating, anxiety and shakes, muscle pain, insomnia, making the addiction worse as she tries to avoid that sickness as well. Her diary that she started in 1944, it changes in 1946, and you can see the effects of the opiates. Her handwriting gets larger with loopier letters. The biographer Hayden Herrera describes the diary entries after 1946 as alternating between frenetic and euphoric, depending on when Frida was writing, either to the gills on morphine or in a stage of desperation when there's trouble finding more. 
I had a really hard time deciding how deep we should go into this descent with her, how dark to let this alleged comedy podcast get, and I made the call that we're going all in. I want to put that out there now. It's too late to show restraint, and to avoid the issue or present it in a sanitized way, it takes from what Frida experienced. So there may be times, I can think of one in particular, as this story gets darker and darker, when we need to seize on a moment, the rare break in the clouds, when the sun shines through, and we can have a brief moment of comedic relief. And I will seize on it, no matter how inappropriately ill-timed the moment is. If, during those moments, there is a, I'm gonna say a less than smooth transition in tone, you have my apologies in advance, with the understanding that I recognize it may come off poorly and I'm still gonna do it. For me, sometimes being told about a thing only confirms to me the parameters of my choice. Like, yeah, you're right, that is indeed a thing I did. My mom told me that the crash scene in Pollock scared the shit out of her because she was driving on the highway when it happened, wasn't expecting it, and had this, like, panic freakout that she was the one getting into a car accident on the highway. That's my mother. I felt terrible. Then, when I read about the Frida bus accident, my first thought wasn't, oh, I should give people a warning. It was, thanks for the production note, Mom. I'll make this one louder and less expected, and hope she's not driving when it happens. There are 24 hours in a day. What are the odds? And it turns out, she only listens when she's driving. So the odds were way higher than I had hoped. I just didn't bother asking. So there's a possibility I may just be an asshole. And I guess my overall point is, we're back to where we started with this year-long project. We're back to needing to appreciate the good times when they're here, even if it's within an uncomfortably small window. By October 1946, Frida was back in Coyoacan. She's still bedridden and in corsets so the vertebrae could properly fuse. It takes a really long time for the bone to fully set, now with a sense of optimism that she hasn't had in a long time. I'm sure the morphine is helping, but so is the hope that going through something so shitty could have a light at the end of the tunnel, that she got the broken thing fixed. Now she just has to wait and heal, and she's more or less good to go. Or it could have made things worse, and she went through all of that for nothing. It's a waiting game. When she's able, she's working on a commission for one of her favorite patrons, a guy named Eduardo Murillo Safa, an engineer who lived down in Caracas. Safa was a generous and kind person. Their business relationship and friendship began when he had Frida paint a portrait of his mom a few years ago. He was a good dude, and Frida liked him. Their correspondence through letters is... believable might be the best way to describe it. It's vulnerable and light, free-flowing and unencumbered by the intense emotional needs and history that she has with other people like Nicholas or Lupe Marin. She's not playing emotional defense. If she needs something like money, she has no compunction about telling Safa he's about to send money. At the end of a letter, Frida will say things after her signature, like it's a PS, like this, quote, Thank you because you are going to send me dough and I am rather needing it. Unquote. There's an October 11th letter to Safa that's a fun read. It's long, so we won't go through it verbatim, but it's a good source for documenting what happened during the time after her spinal fusion. 
She gushes over Dr. Wilson, who she saw as a miracle worker. He had identified a fifth vertebra that was damaged and they needed to keep an eye on. And he patched her up so well that he recently wrote to Frida and said the bones are set enough for her to be able to paint for two hours a day. That's great news to be getting, and it confirmed the three hours a day she'd already been painting without his knowledge wasn't preposterously irresponsible, it was only regular irresponsible. She's got a lot of downtime that she spends reading since she can't go places where she could be bumped into or fall, and she needs to be close to a bed. She's making her way through the book War and Peace, and I didn't know people actually read Tolstoy. It sounds boring on the level of the Communist Manifesto, except War and Peace is over 1,200 pages. But being barely able to walk and without Netflix, I guess I would read War and Peace too. After two or three hours of work, she is exhausted and needs to sleep. Three hours of activity completely wipes her out. She is done. It's a scary feeling when your body needs that much rest to keep going, because staying alive is that biologically difficult. It's why it's terrifying to look after a baby, sick person, or an old person. They're one missed meal or a missed nap away from ruining the rest of Thursday. They can't just tough it out and not have a sandwich. Even being able to work for three hours, though, it's better than before, and it's still early in her recovery, and progress is looking good, outside of a few random shooting pains that hopefully are temporary. The painting she's working on for Safa is a mixture of that fear and hope for the future, and Frida's saying the fear for the future should never win out, to always make yourself see the potential for a good outcome. The painting is called Tree of Hope, named after her favorite saying that was a line in the song from Cielito Lindo Huasteco, a variation on the Cielito Lindo folk song. Translated to English, the saying is, Tree of Hope, remain strong. Those words are painted onto the flag the Frida on the right is holding. She's sitting up, in a corset, but she's sitting her hair up in a bow that matches her Taiwana dress, holding the corset she's currently wearing. She's projecting her hope for the future that she won't need it anymore. The Frida on the right isn't the dancing girl beyond the glass per se, that impossible future. It's more of a realistic interpretation, the modern equivalent. It's the version of her with the brightest future. The Frida on the left is her during the operation. That's how big the incisions were. She painted them their actual size. She loved showing off her scars to friends who were like, Jesus, man, we don't want to see that. And then she'd giggle. The wounds are still bleeding as her face is shrouded by her hair and a white sheet. There's visual metaphor techniques from my birth in here, the desolation of Pedregal, with, in the bottom left-hand corner of the painting, a sprout of grass, life where it's least expected, tiny roots fighting to survive between the barren rock. And her face is... There's a look of... It's like a resigned amusement. It's her reaction to a feeling, not just the feeling itself. I'm legitimately obsessed with the look on her face in Tree of Hope. You can almost see her shaking her head and saying, I mean, what do you want from me? I'm trying here, man. I'm doing the best I can. Maintaining my positivity. I'm juggling a lot of stuff over here. 
I think it goes without saying that the duality of Frida is in full force here. The two Fridas themselves, as well as her use of the sun and moon, the day-night duality, the metaphor for life and death. The pre-Columbian cultures, other ancient civilizations, really independently of each other, many if not most of them had religions that revolved around the sun god as the creator and the moon god as the god of death. The Greeks, Romans, Egyptians, Hittites, early Shintoist Japanese, I mean, nothing else really would have made sense. The sun was the most important life-giving source of light and heat. Everybody's awake and walking around. Then at night when the moon comes out, everybody goes to sleep. It's a, a simulation of death. There was no in-depth understanding of astronomy or cosmology, so it would be weird to look up at the sun and moon in the year 2000 BC, witness the celestial power, and then go pray to some guy named Dave. Over time, Western society collectively shifted, sometimes through a slow spiritual and cultural evolution, and sometimes forcibly because a bunch of dildos took a boat ride across the Atlantic, took your gift of a necklace of golden shrimps, and then murdered everybody. Either way, Jesus took over, and yes, I'm channeling a lot of Freud's deathbed book here, so why pray to the sun god when we have a painting of this dude with chiseled abs who turned water into wine? That guy's awesome at parties. And the priests of the sun god temples across cultures didn't have the best track record with predictions. Not that it's their fault, it wasn't real to begin with. And that's not even the point of this. I just got distracted. The sun and moon as metaphors. Her use of that metaphor for life and death, it won't change. Instead, I want us to pay attention to how she paints them. The sun here using an impressionist technique of tiny brushstrokes that show off the color. Both the sun and the moon are controlled in their shapes with that primitive style that's unique to her. They're as you would expect. For now. We need to be brushstroke detectives as the history gets foggier. The sun and moon technique is one of the few consistent reference points that we'll have in order to create sort of like a, a trend line of how her life is. I mean, to be honest, it's a tool we'll be using to track her descent. As 1947 comes around, she's out of the steel corset that Dr. Wilson prescribed, the corset she's wearing in Tree of Hope. How much hope there is, or was, is based on the success of the operation, and it depends on who you ask, and this is where the history gets a little weird. People who loved Frida were protective of her legacy. They were in life, and they were after her death. With specific events like what we're about to talk about, explanations often didn't match up. People had different theories with limited information, and corroboration can be next to impossible. Alejandro the Cachucha believes Dr. Wilson fused the wrong vertebrae. So did a doctor from a few years from now who said the metal plate wasn't secured in the right place. Quote, it was just below the sick vertebrae, unquote. What do you mean, the sick vertebrae? Which ones? Wilson identified five damaged vertebrae and made the decision to fuse four. There wasn't the sick vertebra, and I think I'm using the plural and singular of vertebra, vertebrae correctly, but I'm, I'm honestly not sure and I don't want to look it up. But maybe fusing five that much of someone's spine in one go wasn't medically advisable. Or maybe that bone wasn't bad enough to fuse and leaving it alone left her some mobility. 
the progress she'd made, going from working 20 minutes at a time to three hours, the supporting information, it just doesn't match up with the theory that Dr. Wilson made such an obvious error. Unless you love Frida, then maybe it's an easier story to believe. If you're someone like Alejandro, it can feel better to have someone to blame, so you'll look for a reason to believe that story. Lupe Marin presents a different version of events, events that are independently supported by another person's memory. I think it may have been someone who worked at the house, but I'm not positive. If you want the real story, as long as it doesn't involve Lupe, you ask Lupe. She does gossip a lot, but her gossip can often be correct. For whatever it's worth, I believe Lupe's version of events. It fits the information that we do have. It's the simplest explanation for why Frida celebrated Wilson for so many months after the surgery when complications would most likely come up. Her making so much progress and then this sudden shift, and it fits what we know about everybody involved. In this possible version of events, Frida's spinal fusion was successful, and using hindsight, supported by what we know of the rest of his career, Beutler was correct about referring Frida to Dr. Wilson. He was a great surgeon. For the latter half of 1947, she was more mobile than she'd been in years, was able to work for extremely long periods of time, considering she got around well and she felt relatively good. And a happy and healthy Frida, as we know, is permission for Diego to spend time with other women. There was some night when either he didn't come home or was seen in public with another woman, a popular theory considering what happens soon. And that's something you don't do. I get that everybody's sleeping around. They have whatever agreement they have. But you gotta keep it behind closed doors. Use some discretion. You can't be flaunting your lack of concern that everybody knows you're sleeping around on your wife. In a fit of rage and sadness over whatever Diego did, we're looking at, I believe, sometime in early 1948, maybe taking for granted how able-bodied she'd felt and likely both very drunk and on painkillers, Frida violently threw herself onto the floor while sobbing, and the impact of her body hitting the ground unfused her spine, or it further damaged that fifth vertebra that wasn't fused. We don't know, but that progress she'd been making was wiped out. Whatever glimmer of hope for the future there was that this story could end happily is now gone, most plausibly from a self-inflicted action. And I had a really hard time with this. It's like, for this asshole? This is the guy? And the answer is yes, this is the guy. We don't have to like it, and I still don't know that I understand it. Her love for Diego has become part of her identity, the Beauty and the Beast fairy tale. For every argument to get rid of him, there's another to keep him around. She stays on message when in public. Oh, Diego, he plays, we all play. Nobody can turn him into a husband. It's all part of his unattainable genius, things like that. The other side of it is what we talked about before. She's protecting his image, the primary source of their wealth and what supports Christy and the kids. In private, though, it was different. Ella Wolf said that when she was alone with Frida, Frida would say she never got used to Diego's incessant need to be with other women, and he couldn't understand why she took it so personally. From Ella, quote, 
Diego never cared. He said having sex is like urinating. He couldn't understand why people take it so seriously. But he was jealous of Frida. A double standard. El Gran Macho. Unquote. He can't stop sleeping with as many women as possible. A one-off every now and then, I guess she could deal with. But in 1948, at 62, Diego was acting like a 27-year-old investment banker. Stop fucking. You're an old man. Be an old man. You've earned it. Surviving the 97,000 things that could have prevented you from living into the 20th century. You were born in 1886 when stubbing your toe might be a death sentence. If you were born the same year Robert Louis Stevenson wrote the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, you're not allowed to be slinging dick after World War II. It's not a good look. You should be out of your mind thrilled by the fact that you're still alive and nothing else. Or, or how about you feign sexual interest in your smoking hot wife, who through the grace of God alone is still willing to have sex with you? You aren't her first choice, physically I mean. Have you seen Nicholas in a neckerchief? Whatever, who cares? She wants to be married and spend your lives together. Just be cool with the fact her physical intimacy with you might be a more textured experience than one based in raw physical attraction. I think you'll be okay if she doesn't slide off her chair at the very sight of you. Some historians have been, I would say, more literal in their interpretation of the 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 get-the-motor-running, pure physical attraction that Frida expressed for Diego, believing her when she said she couldn't keep her hands off of him, rather than... He had physical qualities that, when you loved him, they were things you learned to love about him. As Frida describes him, quote, His hair so thin and fine that it seems to float in the air, Diego is an immense baby. Seeing him nude, you immediately think of a boy frog standing on his hind legs. His skin is greenish-white, like that of an aquatic animal. Only his hands and face are darker because the sun burned them. His infantile shoulders, narrow and round, flow without angles into feminine arms that end in marvelous hands, small and delicate in design, sensitive and subtle like antenna that communicate with the whole universe. Diego's chest, of it we have to say, that had he landed on an island governed by Sappho, where male invaders were apt to be executed, Diego would never have been in danger. The sensitivity of his marvelous breasts would have ensured his welcome. Unquote. He's got a nice C-cup going on, and he also couldn't fit into normal underwear anymore. Frida had to get specially made underpants for him. She'd have them made using pink fabric, which was not appropriate for his machismo, and then she'd make fun of him. In quotes like that, saying he has marvelous breasts, she's breaking his balls, his and the people who took everything so seriously, like the gringo reporters and the candy cane incident. I think it comes down to this. Having an open marriage like they do doesn't mean you can be an asshole about it. Publicly doing things that make people think you don't even want the open marriage. 
Frida just doesn't want to be thrown away, treated like a broken thing that has no value. Her ideas of and capacity to embrace imperfection is driven by a lifetime of waking up each day and seeing herself as flawed and different. Into her 40s, she'd still jokingly refer to herself as Frida Pata DiPaolo, Frida Pegleg. There was a story about a worker at the house who brought Frida a wooden chair from the garden that had a broken leg, and he was like, I'm going to throw this out, just double-checking you're cool with it. No, no, it's not cool to throw it out. Since episode one, this series has been low-key about wooden legs, figurative and literal, and now we have a third one? What if we don't get another? We don't throw away wooden legs in this family. They're not, well, I guess they're grown on trees. It's like the one time that saying doesn't work. Her point was, just because you say something is broken doesn't mean it's valueless. Instead of throwing away the wooden chair leg, Frida used it to make a carving of her lips and she gave it to a friend as a gift. She had a larger-than-normal capacity to see beauty in what doesn't fit society's standards. For example, a naked Diego, who still can't accept the fact that he's no longer a sex god into his 60s. Diego was drifting away. He was working more, spending more time out with their film industry friends, and leaving Frida alone. Technically allowed under the terms of their second marriage, still, Frida felt abandoned and alone, heavily medicated on opiates and feeling isolated at the house. The only painting she completed in 1948 was a self-portrait, similar in theme to Self-Portrait as a Tawana from 1943, when Frida told us that the second marriage functioned well. In the 1948 version, the beauty of her life that was swallowing her is now all-encompassing. It takes up the entire portrait. The lace is more beautiful. She has a fancy brooch. These areas of her life that are getting better and better. Her success in Mexico. They're doing okay financially. Building a museum for their work. Objectively good things. The flip side of that coin that she's talking to us about is that these seemingly positive developments are making her feel more alone and isolated than ever. Their successes are making their lives more bougie, not less. She's less connected to the world and frustrated that she can't spend more time around everyday people. It wasn't all noble, though. She did like some of the bougie aspects. Their celebrity status was sort of an old-world artistic royalty that had now been integrated into the new age of Mexican cinema with the glitz and glamour. It's hard to conceptualize how bonkers famous they were in Mexico, and she can't even fully enjoy that fame. She's painted herself looking strong and resolved and sad. Sad about Diego being a dick, and maybe sad at knowing that her surgery did help, and she blew it, because, I don't know, she had a few too many cocktailitos and felt fine, then had an emotional reaction to something and made a split-second decision. Those bad decisions where as soon as you make it, you're like, oh, God damn it, I just need to go back two seconds in time, just two seconds. From a technical standpoint, we can't overlook what she's done here with the lace alone. The ornateness, precision, ability to maintain the patterns and the math while keeping that primitive honesty of her self-taught mechanics. 
There's also a subtle use of limited coloring in the lace, greens, beige, and whites, accentuating the pink ribbon around her face that's slightly raised at the top, giving a pink shade to her braid in a, it's a, I mean, it's, it's absolutely a clitoris. I mean, I don't even know if we can hedge on this one. With nearly anybody else, you could reject the argument that this appears to be Frida's head coming out of a giant vagina, and her hair is again a metaphor for sexuality, saying, I'm still alive, and I want to do things that make me feel alive, and some of those things may, on occasion, involve my clitoris. What do you want from me? Frida's self-portrait from 1948 is a supernova. It's an explosion of everything we've learned for the past however many hours. We're seeing the full evolution from her first self-portraits, the confidently seductive first to Alejandro that was her version of Botticelli's Birth of Venus, Time Flies when she used simple forms of obvious metaphor and puns. It's fascinating to compare those side by side with the intricacies and depth of message that we see here in 1948. And I do believe using the word supernova is the best way to describe the 1948 self-portrait. The last dying act of a celestial body, a final explosion of energy before entering into its next cosmic phase. We'll never really see this level of ability again. It's a steep decline, too. Her technical skills, use of her own and humanity's history, psychology, religion and philosophy, those little personal secrets between her and us if we're willing to look for them. Frida's work and messages will get simpler and more obvious as she struggles to say the same thing, but her body and mind won't let her. She's working with a severely diminished capacity. There's a similarity in struggle between her art and the loopiness of the handwriting in her diary, where you can sense that it now takes her five careful seconds to write a word when it used to take her two explosive seconds. There's something about the way Frida painted that felt like it was the last time she'd ever put a brush to some sort of medium to say the thing she needed to say, as long as she could say all of this thing on one piece of tin or masonite, if it's the last time, okay, I just need to paint this last thing. Someday, that will be true. It's the last time you'll be able to say everything you want to say at once. Then the ceiling gets lower and lower, and you need to pick and choose between what's still left in the tank. And the combination is always changing, and you can't wait for everything to come together again because it never will. Your hands don't do what you want, and you can't execute those finer details. You can't grasp the thoughts that used to come so quickly to find the best historical reference. If I could just remember that one book with the scenario that I thought about two weeks ago, that would have made the perfect metaphor. Struggling for the memory of memories is the most frustrating. Two months later, you may think of the perfect new idea to paint, but your fingers and hands can't pull off what you need them to do. That's where we're going. We're going to go down that physical and mental path with Frida until we reach a place when ornate lace patterns and bathtub reveries are ancient history, where suns and moons barely look like suns and moons, and Frida is no longer even a shell of herself. I mentioned earlier about the need for comic relief when things get really dark and how we need to seize on those crucial moments. 
We are not even close to needing that yet. You don't even know. We don't need a Hail Mary right now. Oh, we all get old and shit stops working? My eye doctor reminds me of that once a year. And thank you for being the annual bellwether of my mortality, Dr. Takahashi. We have ample time before dealing with that. Right now, we're with Frida as her morphine use is steadily increasing, turning into the one constant calming effect in her life, while Diego is out there keeping busy and pouring himself into his work. It's murals, portraits, charcoal drawings, paintings of flower vendors, little kids with baskets, a portrait of his daughter Ruth. Remember he had daughters? Diego was a conveyor belt of productivity and was making big moves. He's living his best life. He had switched his primary art dealer to a woman named Emma Hurtado, and he was preparing for an anniversary exhibition at the Palace of Fine Arts. It was to be a one-man retrospective, celebrating the distinguished career of the great maestro. Old paintings, new paintings, the governments involved, it was to be a singular cultural event in Mexico. And Diego was savvy. He knew that the film industry was an unavoidable future, and if he could leverage his filmmaking friends, it would increase his exposure and keep him relevant. His grand idea was to make the centerpiece of the exhibition a portrait he was painting for their friend, Maria Felix. Maria Felix was the hot new star of Mexican cinema. She played the iconic role of Doña Barbara, later cementing her reputation as a temptress and femme fatale in La Mujer Sin Alma, a movie about a woman who uses her beauty and sex to manipulate men. Sound familiar? Admittedly, I may have reviewed a disproportionate sample size, but it seemed like a lot of movies back then were about women weaponizing sex against the poor, unfortunate man, a situation that, I've got to be honest, I've personally never encountered. Maria Felix often took those roles because those were the roles that were available. It was that or playing a nun, still with a weird romantic tension with the male lead. The Madonna-Whore dichotomy was, I mean, sometimes they didn't even try to hide it. The plot of the movie would be the internal struggle of a nun or missionary, as she wonders if, deep down, she is secretly a whore, only to overcome her crisis in faith, save a bunch of children, and confirm at the end that she is indeed not a whore. It's some crazy shit. You cannot make that movie today. Maria Felix was a bombshell and a breakout star, the Marilyn Monroe of Mexico. Her and Diego met a year or two ago while she was filming Rio Escondido, and she became friends with the whole crew at the Blue House. Diego and Frida, Boitler, French Dadaist poet Benjamin Pere. She's inner circle. I believe even Siqueiros is back in the country, and he's around again. The press was blowing up with anticipation over the Maria Felix portrait. Everybody knew his sexual history with his models, and sitting for him was the ultimate model. How would the great maestro paint the biggest film star in Mexico, and what would it tell us about their relationship? It took 40, 40, 40 modeling sessions to complete the portrait, and no witnesses were allowed to watch a guy paint who loved few things more in life than for people to watch him work. When Diego finally presented the portrait to the press, it was obvious Maria had posed nude, and he covered her with a thin layer of a 
barely there dress that hugged the curves of her body, leaving little to the imagination. The look in Maria's eyes had that glazed-over, orgasmic expression that Diego used in his portraits when he was sleeping with his model, and the press went nuts. Everybody now understood why the 40 modeling sessions were closed to the public. Diego was making a declaration about his relationship with Maria Felix that became national tabloid fodder. Would he divorce Frida? Would Diego and Maria get married? Three major newspapers, three, reported that Maria Felix accepted Diego's marriage proposal under the strict condition that her 22-year-old Spanish refugee girlfriend, who happened to be one of Frida's nurses, would also join the new marriage, a newspaper story that is commonly referred to as complete and utter bullshit. Somebody told the press a salacious rumor about a sexy nurse and threw one of those ninja smoke bombs made out of glitter, and the press was tripping over themselves. He's sleeping with the nurse, too. Right, right. I mean, how do you think that got started? And she, she, no, no, no. I said she is a Spanish refugee, not isn't one. Why would I tell you she isn't one? That seems like an odd amount of information to volunteer unprompted. Did you think I said she isn't because it's super obvious that Spanish refugees are a real trendy fetish right now? They're like little war-torn sex Tamagotchis. And you would have naturally assumed, unless I proactively said, yeah, yeah, okay, I see what happened. I I'm glad we cleared that up. Basically, every day Frida woke up, she'd make sure she had enough Demerol and morphine to get her through the day and open the newspaper, wondering whether her disintegrating marriage and uncertain future would be splashed across the front page as a cheap soap opera. They had to say it was my nurse. F fuck. Beyond that, we don't have any real certainty surrounding much else about this time. There are a thousand different memories from twice as many people describing this legit national scandal, and nobody knows what happened. We got some information pointing this way, and then some over here. It, it's Tommy's mother's dog painting from Goodfellas. I like this one. One dog goes one way, and the other dog goes the other way. One is going east, and the other one is going west. So what? In a situation like this, we would ideally rely on credibly sourced journalism with robust editorial standards to wade through the bullshit. Instead, we're getting cliche erotica about threesomes. And it wasn't just bad journalism. What made the research so hard at this part is everybody is in legacy protection mode. Diego's autobiography that I guess I technically should have mentioned up top as a source called My Art, My Life. I read it. I don't know that I would say I used it or pulled information from it that wasn't available in other books. As an autobiography, it just wasn't reliable at the points you needed it to be. He'd make a hard sell on how flawed of a person he was and how his actions hurt Frida, such a tragically flawed creature, until you got to something where you'd really like to hear his version of events. What was your thought process on that one? And all of a sudden, he's the old man in the boat from the Goodfellas painting. And this guy's saying, what do you want from me? We're again faced with a situation where this is the best guesstimation of how things went down. 
when the Maria Felix portrait was unveiled, everybody went cuckoo bananas by what everyone knew to be true. Maria was so embarrassed by the painting and the surrounding press that she said he could no longer use it in his retrospective. Instead, the replacement centerpiece for the exhibition was a nude painting of the beautiful poet Pita Amor. Her being nude, of course, meant that her and Diego were having sex as well. Pita Amor was the the side salad to Maria's fiancé status. It's quite confusing. Frida was beyond mortified at being so easily tossed aside in front of the entire world that she moved out. For her own self-respect, she had to move out. She took an apartment in the city center near the Revolutionary Monument as Diego continued to make a spectacle of himself. He didn't deny that he wanted to marry Maria Felix, telling reporters that he, like hundreds of thousands of other Mexicans, so it's not his fault, was in love with Maria Felix, and told reporters that it was because he loved Frida so much, see we're, we're flipping this around now, that's why he needed to be with Maria. Quote, I adore Frida, but I think my presence is very bad for her health. Unquote. It's the old bullshitter two-step. Don't take responsibility for your actions, then say you're doing it for someone else's benefit regardless, in case people weren't sold on your first excuse. Unbeknownst to Diego, Maria wasn't focusing all of her romantic energies on him. He might have been feeling that Maria was holding back, only he couldn't put his finger on why. Frida could put her finger on it because she was having sex with Maria Felix too, and she was having sex with Pita Amor, the poet and subject of Diego's nude portrait. Her relationship with Maria Felix will be ongoing and with more depth. Pita Amor is, it's more like a fling, a similar dynamic to what he had going on, and I thought that was kind of funny, like when you know a couple with a nightmarish relationship, and every now and then you see them be on the same page about something unexpected or odd, and you're like, yeah, yeah, I guess I could see how that works. On the whole, Frida's relationships with women will intensify as she gets older. You can see it transition over time, and not just sexually, it's emotional support. Her friends and Matilda Jr. and Christina will be a daily presence. Matilda Jr. starts writing with Dr. Alesser when things get bad. Christina is functionally living back at the house part-time. All the sources talk about how Matilda Jr. and Christina really stepped up for Frida, and I wish I were emphasizing this for comedic effect, but I'm not. None of the sources really talk about Adriana. But Jan, you don't have any friends. Of course, in the romance department with Maria Felix and Pita Amor, there's the added empowerment bonus of sleeping with your husband's mistresses, as he thinks he's living his best old man's sex life. Through this separation period with Diego, Frida would be flippant and act like she didn't care. He was having fun, so was she. We know from Ella Wolf that flippancy was never true. It was her public face. Her work is where you found out how she really felt. In 1949, she painted Diego and I. This piece really snuck up on me. Even now, as we're getting closer to the end, I'm still surprised by paintings that I originally planned to quickly work through, just as something we should know about. And then everything from the series, from Malinche to the Revolution, the Cachuchas, Detroit, it all comes back and ten minutes later I'm still staring. 
There is an intensity within the quiet simplicity in Diego and I that I wasn't expecting. Her hair is down, something in the past we've associated with comfort, sensuality. Not here. That imagery and meaning has changed. Her hair is wilder, unkempt. She's frazzled and strands of her hair are wrapping around her neck, strangling her. The image of Diego is centered on her forehead, the person on her mind causing her tears. In the middle of Diego's head is a third eye, the symbol for wisdom, given equal prominence to his double chin. And so what? He's got a fat face. She loves his fat face. It's his brain, his intellect and wisdom, sense of humor and political passions. That's what she misses. Their living apart situation that Frida knows is another ridiculous Peter Pan fantasy of Diego's. It's driving her nuts, and she's falling deeper and deeper into addiction just to cope with everything. In addition to opiates and alcohol, Frida is now taking a shocking amount of barbiturates, in theory to get to sleep, but it was the amount she was taking and mixing with morphine and alcohol that was the problem. In her apartment building, a worker heard screaming one night and ran up to Frida's apartment where he found her on fire. She'd fallen asleep or nodded off from the drugs, I get the sense it was the latter, and a candle she'd left burning set her clothes on fire. Maria Felix cares about Frida, and this is getting out of hand. She wasn't marrying Diego. It was a, a fun fling that got out of control, a wild historic adventure that needed to end. So Maria dumped Diego. He came back with his tail between his legs and begged Frida to move back home. And she was like, yeah, okay, that's all I wanted. She wasn't asking him to stop sleeping with Maria Felix. She's not even done sleeping with Maria Felix. It's one of the bonds that joins them in holy matrimony. They both know what Maria Felix looks like tiptoeing to the bathroom in the dark after they're done having sex. Just don't be a jackass about it. We see their reunion in the 1949 painting, The Love Embrace of the Universe, The Earth, Diego, Me, and Senor Shalotl. Senor Shalotl was Frida's favorite hairless dog, sleeping on the arms of Siwakoatl, I think? I don't know. It's the Aztec god or one of the Aztec gods of motherhood and fertility. I know I didn't pronounce any of that right. I think that ship has sailed. We're equipped to understand functionally everything in this piece, so I don't want to spend too much time on it. It's gorgeous and mystical. It's got an acid trip thing going on. It's wonderful. Instead, I want to pay attention to how the painting is reminiscent of that early primitive label that people gave her work, before she evolved into her more sophisticated, fully formed techniques. This is one of the first moments where it's not clear if she's making artistic choices or if she's working around the limitations of the opiates, alcohol, barbiturates, the entire cocktail of addiction. We can see the differences in the respective suns and moons, with the sun and moon in the love embrace being slightly... Fuzzier isn't the right word. Someone who actually knows what they're talking about could probably explain this much better. It's, it's just not as tight of an execution as the sun and moon in Tree of Hope. She's using larger and loopier forms with the arms of the goddess when compared to the intricacies and detail of the 1948 self-portrait, mirroring the larger and loopier handwriting from her diary. 
Her form and face is less precise. It's a reversion to that primitive or rustic execution from her earlier work, an approach she somewhat took in roots in 1943, portraying herself with less detail, more of that primitive depiction. The difference is Roots was unquestionably an artistic choice, whereas the techniques and the love embrace are closer to a necessity, part of that slow decline, unable to draw on all of her talents as she's unable to get through the day without opiates, barbiturates, alcohol, or getting that first glimpse of that. She will have a bounce back in a few minutes, and we'll talk about why, how, and what she does with it. It's two paintings that are the last full expression of her technical skill during a period of relative sobriety that provides more evidence to the impact her addiction does have on her work. At the end of January 1950, Dr. Alessar came down to Mexico City and was able to see Frida in person, but the woman he'd met 20 years ago wasn't the woman standing before him. She'd lost an unhealthy amount of weight and looked gaunt and tired, was popping barbiturates like candy, and was taking an unholy number of opiate injections. It's less than the number she'll be taking soon, but even in 1950, it was an amount dangerous for anything other than a small horse. When a lesser examined Frida's right foot, he saw that the tips of four of her toes had turned black from gangrene. She wasn't getting proper circulation in her toes from her foot twisting outward for all those years. Connective tissues and blood vessels were being pinched, and her toes were being starved of oxygenated blood. The foot was an injury that, for quite a number of years, felt secondary to her back. It was painful, restricted her movements, but now it's potentially life-threatening. Gangrene from poor blood circulation is called dry gangrene. It's different than wet gangrene, which is an infected form and has a much higher mortality rate. There's also gas gangrene, even more dangerous. The dry version has a better chance of a cure, as long as you catch it early, until an infection sets in. I read a lot about wet and dry gangrene. I, I gagged some. It's hard to research gangrene without being shown super helpful visual aids. And I'm not a big feet person anyway. And gangrene toes with the toenails, it... Ugh. But I wanted to know the stakes of what she was up against. Before leaving Mexico, Alessar gave his honest opinion. He told Frida she should get her toes amputated as a preventative measure. Risk of infection was too high. It was too much of a gamble to keep the toes. Frida saw five doctors, all of whom said she should amputate. They only differed on the location. One doctor said he could treat the gangrene with, quote, subcutaneous injection of light gases, helium, hydrogen, and oxygen. And that sounds like nonsense, but I have no clue. It wasn't until she saw Dr. Juan for real that she trusted someone's insight and advice in the same way she trusted a lesser. He was smart, capable, Frida loved his personality, she called him Chulito, and he was someone who knew what she was going through. Dr. Fareel had foot issues for a good deal of his life. He had surgeries, had his own orthopedic device for a while. He was a broken thing, too, and Frida trusted him with helping her not be as broken. 
Fareel wanted Frida in the hospital for more than just the toes, though. Her toes could wait if there was no infection. If they didn't fix her spine from whatever happened in early 1948, she would soon be unable to walk permanently. There would be too much damage and walking wouldn't be possible. I also think he saw how ravaged Frida was by alcohol and opiates, had extremely poor nutrition. She needed to be in the hospital and under around-the-clock care. By February, she was in the hospital, and she won't be checked out for nearly a year, an entire year. When April comes around, she'd have been operated on twice. The second time was another spinal fusion. The assistant surgeon who helped Dr. Furiel was the one who said the correct vertebra wasn't fused right the first time, and I'm still not sure about that. It sounded like the vertebra Dr. Wilson consciously didn't fuse got worse, either through a slow, grinding breakdown or something happened when she threw herself on the floor. The second fusion and the weeks after were hellacious. Her intestines got paralyzed. She had a persistent fever around 102 for nearly two weeks. She was throwing up nonstop. Matilda Jr. would visit and said the smell of her surgical wounds that wouldn't close was nauseating. Frida eventually regained full consciousness, and it looked less and less likely that she would die. Whether the surgery actually worked was a tomorrow problem. They still weren't convinced she would actually survive the procedure. Matilda Jr. said the hardest part about talking to Frida when she regained consciousness was letting her know that while she was out, the gangrene in her toes had spread, and the original location, the tips of her toes, they had fallen off. Her toes were falling off. The obvious concern now is that the gangrene is going to keep moving up her foot and make things worse, and they should probably take the toes as a preventative measure. And Frida went nuts. She was adamant that Dr. Fareel could fix her foot as well, and she was going to be back on her feet again soon, and nobody was cutting off her toes. It's the end of the discussion. Besides, we have much more immediate concerns, like the fact that this hospital room is super ugly and depressing. This is not going to work, from like a feng shui and aesthetic perspective. And since her room in the hospital would be home for the foreseeable future, really, Frida decided it needed some pizzazz. She decorated the walls with sugar skulls and white doves made with wax paper, like the one she had at home, like she's in a John Woo movie. She had a giant painted candelabra for like a real goth candlelight feel, and books and art supplies were everywhere. Her nurses had to keep changing her plaster corsets so they could treat any wounds or bed sores that developed, and never want to throw out broken things, the sawn-off plaster corsets were now valuable as canvases, so she painted them and showed them off to her friends, after she showed off the open hole in her back from the surgical wound that just wouldn't seem to stay shut. It was a giant gaping back hole. They were like, oh, come on, man, we told you to, we didn't want to see that. And she'd laugh. To add to the issues, because why not? We're here. It would be bizarre at this stage of the game for anything to be easy. The cadaver bone that they used for the graft. Yup, a cadaver bone, like from a dead person. And yes, I'm well aware this is completely normal, and it still freaks me out anyway. I also know spiders won't kill me, but I have a mini panic attack every time I see one of those. Anyway, the cadaver bone 
you know, attached to her spine, developed a fungal infection. So each morning, Frida was injected with teramycin. She was the first person in Mexico to take the antibiotic. In 1950, teramycin was considered cutting-edge medicine. Nowadays, it's used on cats and dogs to treat pink eye. Each night, Diego would stay in the room next door, except for Tuesday nights, when he said he had to be at Pedregal to work on the museum. Not a whole lot of details on why, not that it mattered, because nobody believed him. The same stream of people who came by the Blue House would visit the hospital room whenever they could. Los Fritos, the Cachuchas, Christina was there most days, and the kids would come a few times a week. Lunchtime was the same spectacle that it was at the house. From her friend Olga Campos, quote, Christina brought a big basket full of all kinds of foods, and a large group of us had lunch with Frida every day. Enchiladas and mole, and there was always a bottle of tequila. Unquote. Arkady Boitler, the Russian rooster, he made sure Frida had a daily dose of entertainment. He loaned Diego a movie projector to set up in the hospital room, and there was a never-ending supply of movies from Charlie Chaplin, Laurel and Hardy, anything to keep her outlook positive. Hello. Staying positive was difficult. There were 24 hours in a day, and while the staff loved her and friends came when they could, most of the hours were spent alone, lying on her back for a year. She hated being alone in the hospital. Technically, she wasn't allowed to work, but the nurses loved her. She tipped well and was charming and appreciative, so after a few months, they let it slide. By November, Frida was able to work for almost five hours a day. She was still in bed, but she had a special easel. She's working on a painting that she had been slowly putting together for many years. It's a family tree painting, similar to My Grandparents, Parents, and I, that she called My Family, a painting that she will work on until she dies and never finish. At the very top are her grandparents, with Guillermo and Matilda in the next row. And underneath them are Matilda Jr., Adriana, and what looks like either a baby or a fetus, either representing her brother that Matilda and Guillermo lost a few days after he was born, or the child that Frida lost in Detroit. The way the baby or fetus image is painted, though, I kind of think it might be both. A combination of the maternal loss shared by her and Matilda. If anybody would think to paint that, it would be Frida. She is clearly in the middle, and the people to the right are a mystery. The most likely guess is it would have been Christina with Isolde and Antonio Jr. She was just still working on placement, so it didn't make sense to complete the faces yet. This was Frida's communication of love to her family and pride in their heritage. She didn't want to rush to complete it. She took her time with every decision, every color. My family was personally valuable. It wasn't a commission. It was just for her. That it stayed unfinished is a powerful statement about the love Frida felt for her family and the depth of her feeling of loss. Soon after Frida is well enough to go back home and continue working there, Matilda Jr. died. 
Frida will never come right out and say it, but I think it was too painful to finish my family after this. To know each morning after breakfast, she'd be face to face with those emotions and loss. It was too much. With her big sister dying, my family turned into a reminder that most of her family was gone. Only Adriana and Christina were left, which meant it was really only Frida and Christina. Because, I mean, you know. My family might be the first incomplete painting we've discussed in the entire show. Or it's the tenth. I don't know. It's kind of a blur. We couldn't leave this out, though. We know so much about this piece. From who's in it, what it means to Frida, why it wasn't finished, Arcady Beutler's role in the movie she watched while painting it, even Rosario and Alberto's tragic tale in La Mujer del Puerto. There's not a chance in hell Frida didn't see that movie multiple times. In early 1951, Frida was well enough to leave the hospital and come home, and she was thrilled. She hated hospitals. Her day started with a nurse bringing her tea in bed, and she would go out to the patio when it was sunny, or into her studio after, and paint from her wheelchair. Standing or walking for an extended period of time is way off. Christina was there daily. She would walk in the house, and Frida would say, Chaparita! In English, little chubby one, what are you up to? And she'd laugh. Christina had become Frida's full-time surrogate with the house, with implicit trust to make sure staff were paid, animals were taken care of, and healthy. She made household decisions, which was a level of domestic control that Frida didn't just dole out. Making household decisions without Frida's explicit consent was not something you did. We'll learn about that later. Christina was different, though. Of the usual visitors who came by the house, Maria Felix was there the most. She would lay with Frida when she was resting, and the two of them would just talk. They didn't have to deal with their public status and reputations. Frida's public persona was much closer to who she really was, but Maria Felix, not, not really. Everybody treated her like a femme fatale, the seductress diva like the role she played in 1944's La Mujer Sin Alma, the woman without a soul, that big breakout role she had where she played a jaded woman who uses her sexuality to terrorize defenseless men and gain social standing. It's a character that couldn't be farther from Maria's true personality. Maria Felix was kinda goofy, and she liked to dance and sing made-up songs, and she didn't take herself seriously at all, and wasn't an evil seductress, despite how the press concentrated on the more interesting aspects of her dating life to encourage that man-eater image. With Frida, Maria could just be herself. That was what she loved about coming to the house. She wasn't playing a part. And in these later years, Maria and Frida were extraordinarily close. Even though she's out of the hospital, Dr. Farreel would come by the house daily during these first few months. He knew his patient and wanted to keep an eye on her progress, and more importantly, the amount of painkillers she was taking. This period of clarity and sobriety in 1951 resulted in two paintings that were vintage Frida. This is that brief window within her decline that I mentioned earlier, where it looks like her addiction might be under control and she could possibly get back on track. 
The first that she completed was self-portrait with a portrait of Dr. Fareel, celebrating the man who saved her life and allowed her to be an artist again. This is the only painting where Frida depicts herself as an artist, claiming that title to her identity. Using a palette designed to look like her heart, she's working on the portrait of Dr. Fareel. There's a, a painting within a painting. It's her interpretation of what the French called a mise en abîme. The traditional mise en abîme technique was popular in the Middle Ages. Artists would include mirrors in whatever scene they were creating to capture a smaller image of that scene within the reflection, usually from a different angle. A famous example is Jan van Eyck's Arnolfini portrait. That's the one with the creepy couple holding hands looking toward the viewer. The woman is pregnant, and the guy looks like if Vladimir Putin and Jam Master Jay had a baby. On the back wall is a mirror which gives us another vantage point of the couple who look like they sprang directly from your nightmares. Frida's version, though, is more of a combination of the Mizena beam concept with the traditional Catholic ex voto or Ray Tableau paintings. In this Ray Tableau devotional painting, Dr. Fareel is clearly the person to be exalted as the savior, and he's looking toward Frida, but not directly at her. Their eyelines don't precisely match up. The interpretation there being, I think, he cares about his patients. It's not about her specifically. He's a good doctor and skilled at what he does. Otherwise, he wouldn't be the subject within a subject. It's his story in the context of hers. It's a three way conversation, and we're being told about her devotion to him. The celebration and devotion as a miracle worker, it's a common psychological side effect of the doctor-patient relationship, especially with major surgeries, and we see the feelings come to life as she paints her own image as, as much less refined than his. She depicts herself stylistically with that primitive feel that she was criticized for in her early career. While Dr. Fareel is detailed, he comes across almost photorealistic within the primitive style of the total work. She's telling you where to look and why. Her studio is empty. Noticeably so, an expression of the intense feelings of loneliness that were still there for Frida as the world moved on again without her, the girl looking through the fog in a window at the world beyond the glass. In this piece, we see that Frida is beyond thankful that Dr. Fareel gave her back her work, and even if everything else disappears, like the starkness in the room, she is an artist. The rest of the painting is an exercise in precision. She's using a lot of straight lines, angles, and perspective, while still retaining the rustic feel of the room. She's showing off right now, speaking to the critics who would still use her lack of artistic training and education against her, saying, as an artist, I'm not the same woman I was 20 years ago, so don't treat me like it. By the middle of 1951, she was able to take short trips in and around Mexico City. She'd get into her friend's convertible Lincoln Continental and cruise around. She'd visit the shops and go to the movies. And wherever she went, groups of people would follow her. It was the famous Frida Kahlo, and she was out and walking the plazas. When the weariness or pain took over, she'd have to sit down and would say, quote, Get me a double tequila. And every so often, toward the end of the year, she felt good enough to go out with friends, like in the old days. 
they would get a giant group together and then go to dinner, drink many copiosas and reminisce. She'd clap along while everyone danced. Diego would get drunk and the monster would come out. This was Frida at her happiest, surrounded by life and laughter. The other painting from 1951 that we have to talk about is Portrait of My Father, painted 10 years after Guillermo's death, and we briefly touched on this before. After World War II, the world put the Nazi regime on trial. It wasn't enough that they lost. The record needed to lay out the atrocities committed by the Nazis and their allies. History couldn't be allowed to forget. The big international tribunal that everybody focused on was the Nuremberg trials, but there were others, like the, oh Jesus, like the Soviet Union's Extraordinary State Commission for the Establishment and Investigation of the Crimes of the Fascist German Invaders and Their Accomplices, and of the damage they caused to citizens, collective farms, public organizations, state enterprises, and institutions of the USSR. You gotta say the whole thing or it doesn't count. Denazification was taking place, and being German wasn't exactly trendy. There was a presumption that being German meant you supported Nazism, due in part to the Nazi propaganda machine that claimed universal approval of the German people. With that political and social atmosphere, there's a different motivation with Portrait of My Father. She's protecting Guillermo's legacy as a proud adopted son of Mexico, and that added layer may have made it easier to handle than working on my family, which is just her lost loved ones and the ones that are left that she's petrified to lose. Guillermo is painted much younger here, how Frida remembered him when he was teaching her about science and photography, and the entire portrait is in sepia, like the architectural photos he used to develop at his studio. She used the same technique when painting the camera lens to make it match his eyes, which is really cool, and the background looks like I think they're sunflowers, but either way, that natural look is contrasted with the clean lines of the camera. It's beautiful, and she's showing off again. She's, she's expressing all of those technical skills. On the very bottom is the scroll that identifies Guillermo as an enemy of Hitler. And knowing what we know about her handwriting, it, it looks normal. It's not the alternating loopy and frenetic scratching that we see when her opiate addiction is out of control, which is where we're about to go now. As 1951 comes to a close, Frida is on her own with Diego, as much as Diego's around. Diego has been spending a conspicuous amount of time away, and the more time he's away, the less money they have, making it so he has to be away more often working to make up for the lost money. But hold on, hold on. If you say you're out working all of these nights, how are you spending this much money? Frida keeps the household finances. She knows what their expenses are. Where is the money going? Things are not adding up. While she's dealing with his weird shifty behavior, the delicate balance that she had found during the first half of 1951, when her opiate dosage was controlled and she could work without being zonked out for so much of the day, that balance is gone. The second fusion either didn't work, or it worked but she was too far gone for it to have a lasting effect, we don't really know, but the pain was as bad as it's ever been. Her leg and foot were getting worse, and her painkiller use is moving past what it did in 1949. It's, it's really bad. 
As her addiction takes over, it gets so out of control and takes so much of who she is as an artist that nearly all of her work from here on out will be in still life because she doesn't have a choice. Her portrait of Guillermo and the self-portrait with Faril are her last two great portraits. Painting still life was an easier way for Frida to say what she wanted to say with her new limitations, to weave her thoughts on life and death, and to do so in a way that didn't need to work within those fractions of millimeters to capture a human experience or an emotion, which wasn't possible anymore. Her still lifes in 1951 are Frida-esque. They're full of life and rebirth, incorporating pain and motherhood, even her animals. It's just now in a different form. The painting Still Life, dedicated to Samuel Faslicht, is a good example. There's watermelon that looks like it's pregnant with the seeds. Her ceramic pre-Columbian dog figurine looks sad. The melon with the flag in it is crying. The themes are the same. Another example is still life with a parrot and flag. The whole painting is bursting with life. They're beautiful, although we have to deal with the fact that they exist, because while her metaphors and message may be the same, she is not. By 1952, her still life start to look panicky, I guess, is the first word that I can think of, like she knows time is running out. Her brush strokes are looser, her use of color is much different than it used to be, it's more aggressive, she's working with the new technique, and it's jarring to see her desperation. The painting Naturaleza Viva is a good example. The metaphors are all there, so no need to go through everything again, including the sun and moon, which don't look like they used to. The term for still life in Spanish is Naturaleza Muerta, dead nature. Naturaleza Viva is Frida saying her still life is alive. Some of the fruit may be in varying stages of death, but death is a part of life, so no matter what stage of life you're in, it should be celebrated. Naturaleza Viva is in a lot of ways aspirational for Frida. She's reminding herself that even the bad parts of life need to be noticed or appreciated. When looking at the fruit itself, it does look alive. Whatever that fruit is up front, I don't know a whole lot about fruit either, apparently. The brown spiky thing with a slash taken from its skin, exposing the flesh. It gives your brain a little empathy tickle, almost making you respond as if it were human skin. The phrase Naturaleza Viva, written below in Roots, looks like lightning or claws trying to grab at something. That's the tonal shift that was jarring to see, the Roots as well as her approach to the color with the sky. It's not what we're used to. From 1952 on, Frida spent a lot of time in bed. She's highly medicated on barbiturates, to the gills with opiates from multiple Demerol and morphine shots a day, drinking crazy amounts of pulque, tequila, brandy. She can't even lay down to sleep without her full-time nurse, Judith Ferretto, laying down next to her to make sure she doesn't roll over. Not for a back issue. If she keeps on her back and gets sick, she could choke to death on her own vomit. Judith is with Frida till the end. She's taking care of her, singing to her, giving her painkiller injections. When Frida doesn't get her drugs in time and the pain crept up, she would get frustrated and lash out at Judith, sometimes throwing dishes or a glass, then cry because she felt bad that she couldn't control her emotions anymore. Before bed, Frida would want one more cigarette. 
Judith didn't mind. The cigarette was how she knew the drugs took over, and Frida was able to get some rest. From Judith, quote, When I could see that her hand was no longer able to hold it and that its direction was not right for her mouth, I would ask her if she wanted me to take it away. She would say no with a movement because she couldn't speak, though she could understand. She was still enjoying the cigarette. I would watch until the moment when I could take it away and she wouldn't know. That meant she was sleeping. Unquote. Their financial issues are mounting up again, in part due to Diego's missing money. On her end, it's the day-to-day expense of getting painkillers, her main focus. She's desperate for money, but with limited time to work before the painkillers kick in and turn her into a zombie. That's what painting has turned into for Frida. It's a means to fuel her addiction. It feels, I don't know, strange, sudden, definitely uncomfortable to say that out loud. Frida is working to support a drug addiction, although it's something we have to accept because it's not going anywhere and it's only going to get worse. The 1952 painting, Congress of Peoples for Peace, is where we are. I don't even want to talk about this painting. The same woman who painted What the Water Gave Me, The Wounded Deer, she also painted Congress of Peoples for Peace. It's a fucking disaster. If you still want to track her suns and moons, there you go. That's where our story is. Frida is drunk and high now for most of the day, just to keep going. Her and Diego are living separate lives, something she could handle except he was disappearing for longer and longer periods of time, spending days, sometimes nights, in the studio. The times he was home, he would hold Frida and sing to her to calm her down until the drugs kicked in, then he would leave and go out and say he was working. Frida's expression of love for Diego is bordering on obsessive, and I'm not an expert in relationships or end-of-life psychology, it just seems like he's fully evolved into a symbol for life itself in her mind. Diego being at the house meant he wasn't moving on, which she suspected he was. His moving on would be an unmistakable sign that he thought her life wasn't far from being over. The money issues they were having suggested he was spending elsewhere. Time, energy, money, possibly supporting one, maybe two other women. You know your partner. You know when something isn't right. When she found out that a young woman had indeed moved into Diego's studio with the explanation that the woman needed some place to stay, Frida tried to hang herself from the canopy of her bed. She would have died if her nurse Judith hadn't heard the noise, ran into the room, and taken her down. This is the first time Frida tried to take her own life, and it won't be the last. It will happen again and again. She talked a lot about suicide in her diary. It wasn't death that she was afraid of. She openly talks about death. I, I honestly, I don't know how to handle this. For someone like her, a lover of life... That's how much pain she was in. She'd be willing to forego life to escape her pain. I'm not an addiction or mental health expert, so I have no clue how the drugs and alcohol were affecting her decision-making. They had to have played a part, or they didn't. I don't know. I'm not equipped to be the person talking about this. It was really difficult to read about her suicide attempts, to see her lose hope. That's how devastating suicide can be. Decades later, strangers she never met are mourning the idea that she would even consider taking her own life. 
Frida was, in her mind, existing. She wasn't living. She knew she didn't have much time left, and she wanted to put the finishing touches on her career. She still had patrons who were willing to give money for the slim chance her brilliance would return. The added bonus is she was grateful to her patrons. When you were Frida's patron, you were treated like family. You could spend time with her. You had access to her. Ordinarily, that's fine, except now she's imprisoned in bed for days or weeks at a time and has less control over her environment. A daughter of one of Frida's patrons was in love with her. Each time the girl came to the house, she would be desperate to see Frida or to talk to her or to have sex with her. The girl had an intense sexual desire toward Frida and was vocal about it. The way the girl was described. Okay, I'm trying my best to translate from 1950s speak. One of the sources used the term brain damaged. Not helpful, or a term I'm positive we're still allowed to use in this context. She appeared to have some sort of developmental or intellectual disability. I don't think we're going to get an accurate diagnosis here. Not that we could trust a diagnosis if we had one, solely from the treatment this girl was given, a trepanation, which is drilling into, cutting, or grinding a hole in a person's skull. They put a giant hole in her head. Trepanation is a surgical procedure, I'm using that term loosely, dating back to the Neolithic era. It was routinely performed in pre-Columbian Mesoamerica and hung around for longer than I would have imagined. It's the pseudoscientific cousin of the lobotomy. Both were rooted in bullshit science, 99.99% of the time they weren't helpful, and were performed without a real cogent explanation as to the verifiable benefit, other than, this woman is being hysterical, we need her to stop being hysterical, if we put a hole in her head, she may stop being hysterical. Honestly, we don't even know if this girl was anything other than a girl, who maybe had some ADHD and happened to be gay, so her conservative 1950s Catholic parents freaked out and had her quote-unquote cured by drilling a hole in her head, which could be what caused the brain damage. Whatever the cause of her current state, I guess, I'm really trying to tread lightly here and be respectful. Whatever the cause, the girl was so sexually infatuated with Frida that she snuck into the house when everybody was gone for the day. Frida was in bed. It was one of those bad days when she could barely move and was in and out of consciousness. The girl walked into her bedroom and firmly suggested to Frida that they needed to have sex right then. That is terrifying, being in a vulnerable position during a home invasion when sex is the stated objective. You can't move, and you have no clue what's going to happen when you say no. For whatever reason this girl was cognitively impaired, that wasn't her fault. She's got a giant hole in her head that she didn't put there. Whatever the reason, regardless, someone who can't make sound judgments is standing in your bedroom demanding sex. Frida told the girl no, that wouldn't be happening, and the girl freaked out at the rejection. She went downstairs, drank a substantial amount of some sort of poison, came back upstairs, stood at the end of Frida's bed, and stared at her until she eventually fell to the ground and died. 
How do you even process what just happened? Tragedy to such an intense, intimate level in the blink of an eye. The few facts we have about the girl's life, I don't even know her name. How she died, how destroyed her family must be, nothing is comparable to how sad that is. I don't want to lose sight of that. Taking nothing away from the ultimate tragedy of the girl's death, we do need to turn our attention to what this means for Frida. She's nearing the end of her life, she doesn't have much of a future, and she's making her best effort to leave behind a legacy as an artist, a woman, political activist, as a person. Now, there's a dead girl at the foot of her bed, known for being gay and infatuated with her, the daughter of her patron. The stories write themselves. The headlines won't be about the tragedy of the girl's passing. The press will make this about Frida, and who knows what other details they'll add. You saw what they did with Maria and Diego. What do you think they're going to do with this? Frida is in bed, can't move, and there's a dead girl in the room. Diego's not home, she can't do anything about this situation, and this event, for lack of a better term, may end up defining the end of her life. She's laying there with no control of the outcome. That's the state of play. Again, I don't want to take anything away from the girl's death itself. It's just, I mean, what else needs to happen in Frida's life? How is it possible this much happens to somebody? It's one thing after another. I'm reading all of this, and it's it, this episode was daunting to research and put together. This entire series has been tough at parts. This was the worst. Knowing that after I was done with my job, I'd have to switch gears to be present with this. Sitting down at my laptop with the books, figuring out how to respectfully but accurately take notes on Frida's drug addiction, suicide attempts, or how this mentally disadvantaged girl with a giant hole in her head poisoned herself because Frida wouldn't have sex with her. And now, I'll remind you, there's still a dead body in the room. Just imagine you're Frida. You have to look around and be like, why me? Why? Is there nothing that can go right? Can I have a few years without some life-altering tragedy? There's the body of a girl laying at the foot of your bed that the world will know about. And if the fallout is especially bad, the blood, sweat, tears, everything you've poured into doing and being something special, it could disappear. You can only imagine the hopelessness, fear, even anger, as you're thinking, please make this go away. Please make this go away. Why can't there be a single thing that works out when it has no right to? Of all the times, why can't that happen now? Why can't something Thing, or even someone, emerge out of nowhere, a deus ex machina of a wonderful soul, a person who might otherwise be easily forgotten to history, someone who, even when people are actively reminded that they will indeed forget you existed, you come out of the abyss like an awkward shooting star of comedic relief when he's needed the most. It's Chucho the Houseboy! I know you forgot about Chucho, or at least didn't think this is where he would pop back up again. Chucho entered Frida's room and was confronted by the body. He knew the implications for the woman he's worked for for nearly 20 years, who everyone knew he was secretly in love with. The woman who liked to sit with him and drink mezcal out of copitas, and said of Chucho, quote, 
I love him for many things, but first because he makes the most beautiful baskets that you will ever see. Unquote. When things are at their worst and Frida is unable to bathe herself, Chucho would carry her to the bath, gently bathe and dry her, and would brush her hair before carrying her back to bed. Someone who does that for you is not going to let one tragedy compound on another. What happened happened. It doesn't make sense to commit to grieving at the expense of more fallout. Chucho went full Harvey Keitel from Pulp Fiction. He made sure the family was contacted right away, told what happened, and had the body, respectfully, removed. The press never found out any details on the circumstances of the girl's death. That last part was with Diego's help. Diego wasn't exactly too hampered by shock or other normal human reactions. When Chucho found the girl's body, he called Diego. After being told the details of what went down, Diego, quote, laughed uncontrollably. Can we officially say that Diego is not a nice or a good person? I mean, we have ample evidence of his profound lack of character. He does have his positive traits. I tried to toe the line as best I could, balancing what I read to hopefully bring him to life in a way that I believe fits his true personality. He was a brilliant, engaging, witty person who never wanted to grow up and take responsibility for whichever way the wind took him. And by wind, I mean his penis. It really is crazy when you compare the two. The last year has been reading about one debacle after another with Frida, the most unfortunate events, and we're not even done with the toe gangrene. There's still more gross toe stuff coming. Then with Diego, everything kinda works out from a purely selfish perspective. If you don't consider anyone else's feelings, we're carving those out. Why would we ever consider those? His hierarchy of needs is sexual, gastronomical, egotistical, comical, intellectual, and when he's feeling a bit pouty, emotional. They always seem to get fulfilled. He's living that sandwich in a blowjob lifestyle into his 60s. He's building his own museum to himself. I'm not saying something shitty needs to befall him. I'm not a fan of putting that out into the world. All I'm saying is, when you're an asshole, but nothing bad happens to you, people notice. And when it finally does, if it's served with a giant scoop of irony, people notice that too. 1952 turned out to be not too great of a year for Diego either, or his penis. Something is wrong with Diego's penis. Again, I'm not saying we have to wish any ill will toward Diego or his penis. I'm saying it's difficult to not notice that this involves his penis. His incessant hypochondria, and I think I mentioned the hypochondria earlier. I, if I've left it out, I'm sorry. I didn't want to turn this into a Let's Beat Up Diego Rivera podcast. But anyway, he was convinced every little thing would kill him, so he complained about each perceived ailment loudly. He was a whiner. I've got a thing about adult whining. I shut down when I encounter it, whatever the issue is. I don't have the energy anymore to get past a wall of whining so me and that person can actually discuss the problem. I've watched Ali Foreman several times. I'm not getting rope-a-doped with emotional manipulation before the fight even starts. Diego whined about everything. I might have subconsciously not gone into this because I knew this would happen. 
Okay, so here's how it went. He would whine and whine about nothing. Frida would finally lose her shit and yell at him to stop whining, and then he would pout like a child. He would lower his head, and when he was saying yes, he would say chi instead of si, like a toddler. Reading about that drove me nuts. Anyway, in 1952, his incessant hypochondria happened to be correct. Diego has legit penis issues. There was swelling and pain. He couldn't urinate. At any age, that's a concern. At his age, he needed to see a doctor. He went, and the diagnosis wasn't good. The doctor told Diego that he had penile cancer. That sucks. It really does. But purely from a historical perspective and knowing Diego's personality, it would be irresponsible for us to not sit here for a bit and explore Diego's penis one more time. We're like 13 hours or so into the series. We can spend another five minutes and tie a bow on this aspect of the story. I spent an entire Saturday researching penile cancer, so we have to talk about it. There are no rails to fly off of anymore. A special thanks goes to the team who wrote the extremely well-written penile cancer article published May 22, 2011 in the journal Advances in Urology. There was a lot of discussion about foreskin. I know quite a bit now about penile cancer rates measured country by country and the incidence of sexually transmitted infections. I'm looking at you, Denmark, mentioned by name 13 times in the article. And you can stop laughing, Australia, because you were mentioned 14 times. Once penile cancer spreads past the penis, it's difficult to treat. There's not a gradual drop in survival rates either. Your odds are much better if you deal with it early and decisively. Now, you may be asking yourself what the phrase deal with it early and decisively means. Diego had the same question. The doctor was brutally honest. He told Diego there was a good chance he would die from penile cancer unless he took the surest way to prevent the spread, a complete castration. They needed to remove his penis and both his testicles. Radiation was an option, though with questionable results. He really needed to remove all his equipment. Like, gone. And I can't imagine what kind of decision that must have been, but there is no legitimate quandary here. You are 66 years old. You were born in 1886, and we're now in the Cold War. You gotta let it go. He's got grandkids you'd think he'd like to see grow up. Diego told the doctor, absolutely not. You're not taking my penis. I will beat this and keep my strong erections. That's a, I mean, he didn't say it like that, but that's still a wild decision to make. But let's be honest, you'd have been better off asking Diego to remove his spleen, liver, a lung, at least one arm, all of those before he's going to give up his penis. He instead opted for a form of radiation therapy, which was successful enough to put his penis cancer in remission. Technical remission, meaning he no longer had signs or symptoms. It's not a cure. The cancer itself may still be there. It's a difference with a distinction. His doctor still recommended that he remove his penis and testicles. Diego again said no. He will indeed keep his old man erections at all costs. He said he'd change his diet, eat vegetables, lose weight. He's got this. 
A few years after our story is over, Diego's penile cancer will return, and he's forced to admit he needs legitimate attention. He refused again to amputate his penis and testicles, but you already knew that. Innately, you knew that was never actually on the table. He was advised to go to Gringolandia, where there was a specialist who was working with cutting-edge radiation therapy. He instead went to the Soviet Union to be treated with inferior Soviet radiation, but he had a political reputation to uphold. Soviet radiation would work just as well, maybe even better. Soviet anything made with the sickle and hammer is better, which we all know isn't true because we've all seen Rocky IV. Diego received treatment, but his body couldn't handle it. He died soon after. Some sources say he died of a heart attack. These are the same sources that tend to be forgiving of Diego's legacy. He died of complications from penile cancer. Penile cancer and shitty Cold War-era Soviet radiation therapy, the most Diego Rivera way possible he could have died. In the spring of 1953, it was common knowledge in their circle that Frida's life was nearing its end. She was frail, almost entirely bedridden, body destroyed by injury, surgeries, drugs. The donor bone used in her latest surgery became diseased and died, so they had to remove the decaying bone as she's struggling to fight off osteomyelitis that spread to her bloodstream. It's just a matter of time. Her friend and gallery owner, Lola Alvarez Bravo, thought it was unacceptable that Frida would die before she was properly honored, not in Paris or Gringolandia, in the place she cared about the most, Mexico. Lola wanted to plan a solo exhibition of Frida's work, her first solo show in Mexico, and a celebration of her career. She told Diego, who thought it was a good idea, Frida's doctors thought her condition couldn't get worse and agreed that a show might lift her spirits. When Lola and Diego told Frida about the idea, she was overjoyed. For a few days after, while they planned the show, her health did improve somewhat. The show was to take place in April at Lola's Gallery, the Gallery of Contemporary Art at Amberes 12 in the city's Pink Zone. Frida hand-wrote and crafted the invitation booklets on colorful paper, bound with bright ribbons, written in the form of a poem. Quote, With friendship and love, born from the heart, I have the pleasure of inviting you to my humble exhibition. At eight in the evening, since after all, you have a watch, I'll wait for you in the gallery of Lola Alvarez Bravo. It is at Amberes 12, and its doors open on the street so that you won't get lost, because that's all I'm going to say. All I want is for you to tell me your good and sincere opinion. You are a learned person, and your knowledge is first class. These paintings I painted with my own hands, and they wait on the walls to give pleasure. Well, my dear Quate, I thank you for this with all my heart. Frida Kahlo de Rivera. Unquote. Once her show was announced, it dawned on everyone that there had never been a Frida Kahlo show in Mexico. As the exhibition opening approached, press from around the world called for information. They wanted to know if Frida would be there. Her presence alone would turn the exhibition into a major cultural event. A few days before the opening, Frida had taken a turn for the worse. 
She was in such bad shape that doctors said she shouldn't be moved. She can't attend the opening. It'll have to go on without her. There's just no way. Frida politely told her doctors, well, I mean, we can all imagine what she told her doctors. On the day of the opening, her four-poster bed was sent to Lola's studio. Her paintings were rearranged to make the bed part of the show. An hour before the exhibition, there were hundreds of people waiting outside the locked gallery, shutting down traffic and pushing on the door, anxious to get inside. Friends, reporters and photographers, uninvited guests who wanted to be there on the one day Frida was to attend. The gallery had to open early so the guests didn't break the door down. As people were filling up the gallery, in the distance, sirens could be heard, getting louder and louder. Frida was being brought to the show in an ambulance with a police motorcycle escort. She was brought into the studio in a stretcher, wearing a Taiwana dress and placed into her bed. Frida Kahlo's first and only solo exhibition in Mexico had begun. Surrounded by her work, guests formed into a line so they could pay their respects to the woman and artist who touched their lives. A guest described the event, quote, it was spectacular, a bit like a surrealist act, with Frida like the Sphinx of the night, presenting herself in the gallery in her bed. It was theater, unquote. Maria Izquierdo, her friend, artist, and fellow teacher at La Esmeralda, herself hampered by bad health, was helped into the gallery by friends and family. When Maria got to the bed, she leaned down and kissed Frida on her forehead. Diego, Cristina, Lupe, the Cachuchas, and Los Fritos, even old man Dr. Otto was there, in crutches at 80 years old after he had one of his legs amputated. He and Frida laughed about their careers and joked about death. It was one person after another from our story whose life Frida touched, walking through the gallery, sharing stories, telling each other about their personal connection to Frida's work. They circled her bed and sang to her. Everybody was drinking, yelling, telling dirty jokes. As the night went on, it became obvious that Frida's first solo exhibition in Mexico was also her living funeral, the exact kind of funeral that Frida would have wanted. She was doing her damnedest to enjoy the night, but she didn't look good. She was described as being heavily drugged, weak, fragile, out of it, and she was wearing way too much makeup. The exhibition was so popular that it extended an additional month. It didn't matter that Frida the Personality only attended opening night. People wanted to see the work of Frida the Artist. Art critic Jose Moreno Villa wrote about the exhibition, quote, It is impossible to separate the life and work of this singular person. Her paintings are her biography, unquote. Time magazine published a powerful expose about her life, the show, from the accident to her marriage to Diego. Quote, After seeing her show last week, Mexico could understand Frida Kahlo's hard reality, and it is getting even harder. Recently, her condition had been getting worse. Friends who remembered her as a vigorous woman are shocked by her haggard appearance. She cannot stand for more than 10 minutes at a time now, and there is a threat of gangrene in one foot. But each day, Frida Kahlo still struggles to her chair to paint, even if it is only for a short while. 
I am not sick, she says. I am broken, but I am happy to be alive as long as I can paint. Unquote. Her exhibition in Mexico and acknowledgement at home was the culmination of a lifetime of work, love of her country, her experiences with Gringolandia, Detroit, New York, Nicholas, the Cachuchas, polio and her accident, Paris, commitment to communist causes, and her family. You cannot turn a page in Mexican history after 1953 without acknowledging Frida Kahlo, who can stand next to any name that we've talked about. Santa Ana, Malinche, Dr. Otto, Diego. It's 70 years later, and I would bet my life that more people on Earth know the name Frida Kahlo than Porfirio Diaz. And after this many hours, now we know why. The Time Magazine article identified how timely this living recognition was when it mentioned the threat of gangrene in Frida's foot. The gangrene couldn't be controlled. It was spreading and two of her toes had to be amputated. Midway through 1953, her leg was barely functional. From her friend, Adelina Zendejas, quote, For the first time in many years I saw her leg. It was crippled, shrunk, degenerated, that I cannot understand how she was able to put her foot into her boot. Unquote. By August, the pain in her leg was beyond agonizing. Frida was taking so many injections of painkillers that Diego was worried she would die from an accidental overdose. Dr. Farreel came to the house and looked at Frida's leg. It was how Adelina Zendejas described it, who was also there with Diego during Farreel's examination. Farreel said removing her toes wouldn't do anything. The gangrene, black necrotic tissue, was spreading through her foot, would keep spreading. This was no longer about her foot. She needed to have her leg amputated. From Adelina, quote, if you could have heard the scream that Frida let out, it came out of her guts. It was something pathetic. Unquote. Frida tried to play it strong, looking on the bright side. She made dark jokes when she told friends that her leg was being amputated. Now she would truly be Frida Pata DiPaolo. The language in her diary, though, gives us more insight into how worried she really was. And Diego was worried, too. Like him or hate him, he knows Frida. He knows his wife. Diego was driving Adelina home after Dr. Farreel's visit. He was staring through the windshield, trying not to cry. And he said, she's going to die. This is going to kill her. He wasn't referring to the operation. He was talking about her personality, her psyche. Having her leg taken will take away her spirit, too. There will be no more illusion of the two Fridas, no psychological defense mechanisms to hide behind. In the days before the operation and after, there was silence. Her time in the hospital for the amputation doesn't resemble the carnival that was her previous days. Frida laid in bed, her right leg removed at the knee. She said only words that were necessary, wasn't interested in visitors, didn't want to participate in any rehabilitation or even paint. When friends came to visit and wish her well, she would tell the nurses to say she was sleeping. Diego was correct. Frida loses her will to live after they take her leg. Her spark was just gone. He could tell right away that Frida was different. And like in Detroit or the other time she needed him the most, he makes things worse. 
Diego's response was to have his new art dealer, Emma Hurtado, move into his studio. Emma was also spending a lot of time at the Blue House and giving orders to staff, making changes. You can't give orders in Frida's house without her consent. It's beyond rude, and the obvious inference is Emma and Diego were sleeping together, preparing to move on together, and Frida was an inconvenience they'd soon be without. Emma wasn't hiding her intentions either. She was described as lacking tact. With Emma acting like she was running the house, Frida refused to leave the hospital. A reasonable position to take. You can't come home to another woman treating you like a squatter in your own house. It all came to a head on a night when Diego was at the hospital. He was dressed up and they were talking. A nurse popped her head into the hospital room and said, quote, Mr. Rivera, someone is waiting for you because you have to go to the opening of an exhibition. That someone standing there waiting was Emma Hurtado, not privately fucking him in his studio, which everybody assumed as soon as she moved into the studio. No, attending an exhibition opening with him as his date, where their friends, colleagues, politicians, everybody they run with will be there. Within a day of this exhibition, even if you missed it, you couldn't leave your house without running into 15 people who want to tell you the hot gossip about Emma and Diego. As Frida is fighting off staff and bone infections, praying each morning she doesn't wake up to see gangrene creeping up her thigh. Diego stood up, said goodnight to Frida, and left to attend the exhibition with Emma, in what amounts to a public declaration. You should know, when Frida dies, this woman will be part of my life, so be nice to her and get used to her. I'm not exaggerating either. Diego and Emma get married soon after Frida dies. After Diego and Emma left for the opening, Frida went to sleep. She woke up the next morning and tried to kill herself by overdosing on painkillers. She was found unconscious on the bathroom floor and had to be brought back. This is as dark as it gets. Frida is now repeatedly trying to take her own life, and it's believed there either have been more or will be more overdose attempts as well. We don't have any details on those. This overdose happened to have had witnesses without a, a vested interest to lie or sweep the truth under the rug. She stayed in the hospital for another two months after Emma moved out, before another marital truce was declared and she came home. It took three months for Frida to be herself again, three months of crying and saying she wanted to die, refusing to wear her prosthetic leg or to practice walking. When she finally decided to try, she had special red leather boots made that were embroidered in Mandarin, written in gold, with bells attached. She learned to walk again with her new wooden leg. She's alive. She can make this work, too. Except the person she was is gone. The strong, resilient woman who would make the best of any situation thrown at her. It's not that she doesn't want to. It was just too much. You can't fight forever. And the only thing the amputation did was make sure her gangrene didn't turn septic. With Frida now home, the once lively Casa Azul has turned into a depressing place. During the day, she was angry and unpredictable. If she wasn't flooded with painkillers, she would lash out or give a contemptful look when one of her nurses or housekeepers did something wrong. She would yell and slam her cane against the ground. As soon as the drugs kicked in, 
she would fade off and the house would be deadly silent, described as a tomb or a crypt. She didn't even look the same. A friend said, quote, At the end of her life, she used makeup and she could not control her colors. It was grotesque. She was a horrible imitation of the old Frida Kahlo. Unquote. Visitors would inevitably find themselves responsible for injecting Frida. Not an easy task. Her back was such a mess of surgical scars and track marks that it was difficult to find a place to inject her with painkillers. Her back is overrun with track marks. She would put three full doses of Demerol into a giant syringe, add from other vials in this narcotics cocktail, hand the needle to whoever was there, and said, quote, touch, touch, and where you find a soft place, inject. The Cachucha Jesus Rios y Valles came to the house with Lupe Marin. Lupe and Frida had reconciled. After the visit, having been one of the friends that needed to give Frida her injection, Rios y Valles sadly described Frida as being completely lost. What may be the most glaring sign that the woman we know is gone is she didn't want to be around children anymore. It was heartbreaking to read. When her nieces and nephews came to visit, she would tell the nurses to send them away, saying, quote, Oh, I don't like children anymore. I don't want them. I can't tell them not to come because it's not good, but I would prefer not to see children anymore. Unquote. One by one, she pushed away her friends and loved ones with her anger and volatility. She fought with everyone. It was too hard for people who cared about her to be around the ghost of the woman they knew. Only Christina and Diego stayed at the end. And we, we are at the end. Diego alternated between loving and patient, then angry and detached, sometimes staying away for days at a time. In his defense, the Frida he fell in love with, whatever connection they had that was obviously strong enough to captivate people today, from their meeting at the preparatoria through, I mean, it, it's everything, for decades. How many nights did they have just up late talking? A part of him has to accept that she is already gone. He's living with a bedridden addict, who's barely awake, with no will to live. It's the simple reality of the situation, however much of it he's responsible for. As big of an asshole as he is, he loves Frida, is heartbroken, and is widely remembered as going through his own version of hell at the end of her life. He would help her fall asleep when nobody else could, rocking her in his arms, singing or reciting poetry, waiting for her to stop moaning in pain. He would then walk down to the kitchen and sit in the dark. Sometimes he would cry, other times he would sit in silence, slumped in a chair, staring into the night. Diego was so desperate to get Frida off of painkillers that he gave her alcohol as a substitute. If she's hammered drunk all the time, she can't ask for painkillers. And his plan failed because that's not exactly how addiction works, and he didn't account for how crafty addicts could be. She'd hid in a drawer what Jesus Rios y Valles described as thousands of vials of Demerol. A small exaggeration, but we get the point. With liquor now added to the mix, she was taking the same number of those Demerol concoctions as well as drinking two liters of cognac a day. This is what rock bottom looks like. 
the end of 1953 and the beginning of 1954 are months I wouldn't wish on anybody. In the spring of 1954, Frida was painting again. After nearly a year, something happened that pulled her back into the realm of the living to acknowledge there's still life left to live. Her diary entry on April 27, 1954, is frantic in its enthusiasm for life, bordering on mania. She was thankful to doctors and nurses, giving promises to friends about making changes in her life, talked about the beauty of her country and its people, communism, love of her family, and Diego, her first cell that was incubated in Oaxaca in her brunette country girl mother, the Czechoslovaks and the Polish people, the concept of marvelous afternoons, Guillermo, Chinese people, and her three dogs, Senorita Capolina, Senor Shalotl, and Senor Costi. She is high as a kite. The prevailing theories out there about what happened or why things changed is that she was exuberant and grateful after surviving an accidental overdose or another suicide attempt. This renewed sense of purpose, however tentative the hold, is what encouraged her to work again. To get her out of the house and maybe give her some inspiration or just a change in scenery, Dr. Fareel took Frida on a drive. They drove out to the countryside where they saw a worker tending to brick ovens. They loved the imagery of the man tending to the kilns as a symbol for the Mexican worker using the earth to stay alive. The clouds of smoke rising into the sky against the sun. When they got back to the house, Frida painted brick ovens, or brick kilns, and it's a mess. Soon after, she painted self-portrait with a portrait of Diego on the breast and Maria between the eyebrows, Maria being Maria Felix. They're bad. There's no other way to describe them. She's painting like someone taking vials of Demerol cocktail and drinking liters of cognac a day. Work is nothing more than a reminder to stay alive. By the end of June, Frida seemed to be coming around. She was engaging her environment, was showing actual interest in her future. She talked about a trip to Poland for a treatment that was recommended by Dr. Fareel. She wanted to adopt a child. Not sure that's a good idea. But before any of that, throwing a big party in August for her and Diego's 25th anniversary. This was to be the event in Coyoacan. It would dwarf the party for the unveiling of the La Rosita murals. She even bought Diego a gold antique ring as an anniversary present that she knew he would love. Frida was excitedly planning the logistics when Gringolandia makes its way into Frida's life one last time. Since around the 1820s, America has been fiercely protective of what it considers to be its sphere of influence, what was initially controlled by the Monroe Doctrine, which has evolved over the centuries with different iterations. The initial concern was about colonialism in the Western Hemisphere, making sure Spain, Portugal, Britain, the traditional European colonists, making sure they didn't try to re-exert their power across the Atlantic. Now the enemy was communism. If that threat, communism, encroached on America's perceived sphere of influence, well, I mean, good luck with that, because we've used the evolving Monroe Doctrine to justify some pretty aggressive foreign policy. 
The target of that fear in 1954 was the government of Guatemala, whose president was elected democratically. It was the first time Guatemala's government changed hands democratically after decades of military fascism. The new president of Guatemala was enacting land reforms, which made land ownership easier for the average Guatemalan, and not the exclusive domain of the 1%. U.S. President Dwight Eisenhower, though, he wasn't buying that lefty hippie stuff, and was convinced, convinced, the president of Guatemala was being secretly controlled by the Soviet Union. He was not. President Eisenhower didn't believe the you know, evidence or whatever. So he had the CIA back a coup against the president of Guatemala and installed a fascist military dictatorship. A lot of people died. America never found evidence connecting Guatemala's president to the Soviet Union. And I'm sure, I'm positive, that the CIA-backed coup had nothing to do with the previous brutal, corrupt, and fascist government in Guatemala being controlled for decades by an American banana company. There's nothing Americans love more than cheap produce. The Americans' role in the Guatemalan coup was publicly known by really any country who was paying attention. You couldn't even call it an open secret. CIA leadership wanted it known. People in Latin America were pissed, across the board. It didn't matter that it was Guatemala and not Mexico or El Salvador. There was a collective outrage against meddling by Europe and Gringolandia over hundreds of years of Latin American history. Pastry Wars, Hernan Cortez, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, the ongoing elimination of Mesoamerican culture that keeps going for decades. U.S.-backed, fascist Guatemalan regimes will commit genocide against ethnically Mayan civilians until the 1980s. Frida's politics can often be overlooked when compared to Diego's, who wouldn't shut up about his. But they shouldn't be. She was a proud and active communist. The CIA, so blatantly treating the region like pawns on a chessboard, was infuriating. This moment right here, this is why episode one went for two hours. I wanted to understand, to the extent I could, what someone like Frida's mindset would be. What would go into someone having so much conviction that when she finally has a renewed sense of purpose, she so brazenly ignores her doctor's orders. On July 2nd, 1954, a demonstration in Mexico City was being organized to protest the CIA's involvement in Guatemala. They were marching from the Santo Domingo Plaza to the Zocalo Public Square, the former ceremonial plaza in the Aztec city Tenochtitlan, the location of countless historical moments in Mexico's history. Frida's doctors told her she couldn't go. She was at the tail end of pneumonia, and being outside for that long could cause a flare-up in her lungs. She had poor circulation and was much too frail for that kind of risk. Frida acknowledged what the doctor said, and a few hours later, she was in a wheelchair, being pushed by Diego, leading the contingent of Mexico's cultural dignitaries and the people of Coyoacan to join tens of thousands of people in the protest at the Zocalo, chanting slogans like Yankee Assassins Get Out. It was the historic, cinematic scene Frida was hoping for that went on for four hours on a cold, 
rainy day. Her doctors ended up being correct, and over the next few days, her pneumonia flared back up. That, combined with the long-term damage from opiates, alcohol, her injuries, her body was shutting down. Frida knew she was close to dying. Her journal talked more about death, and she talked about it openly with friends. The Cachucha, Manuel Gonzalez Ramirez, he came to visit, and they discussed her impending death like it was any other topic. It wasn't awkward. She told Manuel that she wasn't afraid of death. Death itself didn't worry her. All she... All she could think about was being lowered into the ground to be buried lying down. She'd been in that position for so much of her life, she couldn't stand the idea of being buried that way. So she wanted to be cremated. On Tuesday, July 13th, Diego sat by her bed during the day for a short time that she was awake. They talked and laughed. She jokingly complained about only eating soup, calling 1954 the year of broth for how much of it she was consuming. That night, she gave Diego the antique gold ring for their anniversary and said to contact a few close friends so she could say goodbye. At around 11 o'clock, Frida fell asleep waking up briefly at four in the morning from pain. A few hours later, at around six, her nurse saw that her eyes were open and staring. She touched Frida's hand and saw she wasn't breathing. Frida died sometime between four and six. By the time he got to Frida's room, Diego was broken. A friend described him that day. Quote, He became an old man in a few hours, pale and ugly. By 8.30, Christina and Diego were joined by loved ones who wanted to say their goodbyes. Frida was lying in bed, dressed in a black Taiwana skirt and her favorite white weepiel from Yalalig, the same weepiel she wore in self-portrait with the portrait of Dr. Fareel. Someone braided her hair with flowers, and she was wearing her favorite jewelry, gold rings on each finger. Death is not instant. Biological death within the cells of the body takes time and includes processes that resemble processes that happen in life, which can play cruel tricks on the emotions of people who don't want to let the recently deceased go. Olga Campos was one of the first to the house that morning. She leaned down and kissed Frida's forehead, causing goosebumps on Frida's skin. Olga started screaming, She's alive! She's alive! By 6.30 p.m., Diego arranged for Frida's body to be brought to the Palace of Fine Arts, where she would lay in state to receive an honor guard before being cremated. In the lobby of the palace, Lupe Marin's brother, Dr. Federico Marin, and a few others were convincing Diego to let Federico provide a death certificate. Diego didn't want to do it yet. He kept yelling about the goosebumps and capillary action. He was making a scene, convinced they would be cremating Frida alive. Federico persuaded Diego to let him draw Frida's blood. If she didn't bleed, Diego needed to accept that Frida was gone. A small cut was made in Frida's skin. There was no blood. Diego said that wasn't good enough, so Federico made an incision in Frida's jugular, and only a drop or two of blood came out. Diego had no choice but to admit it was over. As of noon on July 14th, over 600 people came to the Palace of Fine Arts to pay their respects to Frida, who laid in a coffin surrounded by flowers. 
After the ceremony, a procession of hundreds followed Frida's coffin as it was carried to the tiny crematorium at the civil cemetery. The crowd remained outside and stood in the rain as a small group of loved ones, political leaders, and dignitaries brought her coffin inside. There were speeches and songs while her body was prepared and placed on the automatic cart that would take her into the crematory oven. The door to the oven opened and a blast of heat hit the mourners near her body, including Christina and Diego, who were holding Frida's hands. As the cart slowly brought her body into the oven, there was a mix of crying and song as the heat got more intense and backed everyone against the far wall of the small room. When Frida was fully inside the oven, the intensity of the heat caused her body to react in a way where she suddenly sat upright as if she were alive, her hair engulfed in flames. Christina had a meltdown. She lost it. She started screaming hysterically and had to be carried out of the crematoria as she watched what she believed to be her sister burning alive in what is one of the most heart-wrenching and gruesome moments of the entire show. Her ashes would be placed above her bed in the Frida Kahlo Museum when it opened in 1958. The Blue House in Kayoa Khan receives an estimated... <sighs> receives an estimated 25,000 visitors a month. Frida's cause of death would officially be listed as a pulmonary embolism, a believable explanation given her recent pneumonia, and a curious level of specificity to receive without much of an examination or autopsy by Lupe Marin's brother, with the additional complication of the first doctor they approached refusing to give a death certificate for some cloudy legal reason. It may have been an estate-related issue. Her inner circle knew that the pulmonary embolism was a good story, but not the reality. There was some reputation protection at play. With Frida's history of overdoses, her behavior the night before she died, wanting to say goodbye, and from what I understand the scene at the time, the only real lack of certainty was around whether her death was from an accidental overdose or a purposeful one. Diego would later say it was him. He couldn't take it anymore, and he was the one who administered the lethal dose of opiates to Frida as a form of compassionate, assisted suicide to end her pain. And I don't believe that for one second, given the timetable puts him elsewhere between four and six when the nurse found her, and him being a pathological liar and narcissist. And I accept that I don't want it to be true as much as I don't think it's true. Her real cause of death is likely lost to history and a piece of information that I'm not sure we need. To concentrate on Frida's death is to miss the point of all of this. Frida's entire message was not to dwell on death, but to see it as a part of life, which should be cherished. Even one of the most horrifying elements of this story, the moment Frida entered the flames of the crematorium. If we could tell Frida that's what happened and about Christina's reaction, she would have laughed her ass off. I was in my kitchen when I realized there's no doubt in my mind that's what her reaction would have been. So I started laughing, then crying at the same time in my kitchen like an insane person. 
That's when I realized we couldn't end this series with Frida's death, when the whole thing is about celebrating life, which was Frida's last message to the world. Her final painting was called Watermelons. It's a still life of watermelons in different stages of life. Compared to her recent work, this painting is as close to the old Frida as we could get. Like she knew this was the last thing she could say, and she put everything she had into it. The true last act of a dying star. Eight days before she died, Frida painted the phrase Viva la Vida on one of the watermelons, which is what the painting is known as today. Viva la Vida. Live life. That was her final message to the world. Live your life. So that's how we're going to end this series. Not with Frida's death and sadness, but with a celebration of her life, with a few quick stories that didn't make it into their respective episodes, even though they probably should have. Like when Frida and Christina were little kids, Matilda made them go to catechism classes all the time to get ready for their first communion. It's a Catholic rite of passage that needs to be taken very seriously. Matilda would say goodbye, and as soon as she left, the girls would sneak away to a nearby orchard to eat quinces and capulines. Or when Frida was seven years old and helped Matilda Jr. sneak out of the house so she could run away with Paco Hernandez. That's got to weigh heavy on a kid, thinking it's your fault that your parents don't have a relationship with your sister. Years later, Frida was the one who found Matilda Jr. One of her friends told her, Hey, there's a married woman living in the doctorate section of town who looks just like you and goes by the name Matilda Kahlo. She didn't go by Matilda Jr. That would be weird. That's our thing. Frida was obviously interested. She misses her sister, and I'm sure she feels bad. Matilda Jr. leaving destroyed Matilda. So Frida went to investigate. She marched inside the house of these people she didn't know and took a stroll through four rooms of this random house to the back patio. Quote, The room was full of light and birds. Matita was bathing herself with a hose. Unquote. Frida went right back and told Guillermo that she had found her sister. She didn't tell Matilda Sr., who was still a little scary at that point. You let Guillermo handle that one. Frida doesn't need that kind of heat. It took a few years for everyone to let old wounds heal, and during that time, Frida would go see Matilda Jr., even though Matilda Sr. refused to go with her. Matilda Sr. and Matilda Jr. eventually reunited, and it was because of Frida. These are the stories she should be remembered for. Like the time she was expelled from the preparatoria by its director, Lombardo Toledano, for a reason that is lost to history. But knowing what we know about her, it was probably something awesome that pissed off a lot of people. Having to tell her parents about the expulsion, though? I mean, she has to know how proud her parents are, Matilda especially. So Frida went to visit Jose Vasconcellos, Mexico's minister for education, because she knew he hated Lombardo Toledano. She made her pitch and demanded the minister for education reinstate her to the preparatoria. Vasconcellos told the director of the school to let Frida back in and said, quote, If you can't manage a little girl like that, you are not fit to be the director of such an institution. Unquote. And finally, the time she won an award for her painting Moses. 
This is the story that I wanted to save, and now is the time. It's September 1946. So much has happened before to get her to this place. She has no idea what's ahead in her future. But right now, right now she is being awarded by the Mexican government for her painting Moses. The prize was 5,000 pesos, and there was an award ceremony with other winners. It was one of those stuffy affairs with men in suits, pontification about art and political theory. Frida was recovering from her first spinal fusion. She was all locked up in a plaster corset, barely able to move. But how could she miss this? She's being recognized with Dr. Adel Orozco in Mexico for a painting that is uniquely Mexican. She was going. There was no question. As it was a special occasion, Frida took out the gold caps in her teeth. Those were everyday teeth. In their place, she put in her special occasion gold teeth covered with pink diamonds, and she showed up at the stuffy ceremony with a gold and pink diamond grill like she's Lil John from 2003, wearing this out-of-control, gigantic, quinceanera-style dress, looking like a princess. Because if you're about to turn 40 and you can barely walk after life has crushed you in every possible way, and you turn that into a life that will be the source of inspiration for untold millions of people, transcending the perceived limitations of gender, sexual identity, physical ability, and your country wants to give you an award and say you're the best of us, you put on your 2003 Lil John pink diamond and gold grill, put on a giant princess dress, and you go be celebrated. That was Frida's final message to the world. Viva la vida. It won't be perfect. You'll make many wrong decisions or life will make them for you, but it's your life and nobody else's. So live it. I cannot thank everyone enough for being here and joining me on this. I know I didn't do this story justice, but man, what a ride. So take care, everybody, and we'll talk soon. 